say it. We have actual animal welfare world greatness sitting right here on our sofa today. <laughs> She's talking about That's you. True. True. <laughs> it's true. Our guest began his career in 1979 as a criminal prosecutor with the LA City Attorney's Office. Now this is the important part. He was the first full-time animal cruelty prosecutor in the nation. And one of only two ever. Wow. So there was another one that followed me from the district attorney's office, and we became partners. Amazing. So, but yeah. Wow. He was Which, also... by the way, I'm interrupting you. <laughs> uh, it's a very impressive, I think. It is impressive. But it's also sad that when you think about it, that animal cruelty has been going on for as long as people have been on this planet... And it took to it took to 1999 or 2001 before we had a full time animal cruelty prosecutor in the country. Yeah. So it speaks volumes that about does. the way we look at animals. I'm going to go on because go there's on. so much more. He was also <laughs> instrumental in the formation of the first multi agency animal cruelty task force for Los Angeles County and city. And it's a model still in use today? Well, that's part of the story. No, unfortunately. Oh. We thought that we had instant made it so that, you know, when we leave, it would still go on. And turns out it's not true. Oh, that's you too know, bad. And friends of mine in other areas of animal welfare are fighting battles that they fought in the 70s and 80s and thought it was over. And it's come back again. And, you know, uh, so LA City, we'll, we'll talk. After you finish that, <laughs> LA City was the, the model around the country. Wow. For, it was sort of the jewel of the country for animal cruelty prosecutions and enforcement. And now it's an embarrassment. Oh. It's simple. Anyway. <laughs> Onward. <Yeah>. Onward. <laughs> Our guest also created new methodologies for the prosecution of street gangs and is directly responsible for both the drafting and the passage of state and local legislation on street prostitution, human trafficking, gang prosecution, and animal cruelty and neglect. And there's more. There's more. Really? <laughs> this good human, whose passion has always been helping the most unwanted of animals, created one of the first humane education programs using special needs dogs to teach kids from elementary school through high school about inclusion and how being different is beautiful. Baron's Buddies. That was the it, name of the program. Baron's Buddies. Baron's Buddies. Our guest also sits on the boards of numerous animal welfare nonprofits, including Last Chance for Animals, as well as his own Healthcare for Homeless Animals. And for the past 11 years, he has been a volunteer at LA County's Agora Shelter. Lindsay and I are so truly honored to welcome Bob Ferber and his adoptable friends, Precious and Shadow, to a podcast. Thank you. Thank you for coming. We're happy to be here. Can you recall a defining moment mm -hmm. 
where you decided or acknowledged that animals were so important on the planet, in your life, in the world? Yes. Uh, when I was growing up, I started with a, we got a rescue dog. I was young and I wanted a dog. I was about 13 years old. And there was a TV show years ago where there was a St. Bernard on it. And it was a comedy sitcom. And so I always wanted a St. Bernard. I didn't know anything about dogs, right. but I wanted a St. Bernard. And my parents were like, you're not ready for a dog. You're not ready for a dog. And finally, my dad came home one day and said, well, there's a dog at this vet's office that a friend knows about that's been there for a year. And, uh, and he's a black Labrador retriever. Why don't we take a look at him? I was like, I don't want a black lab. I want to say Bernard. I don't even know what a black lab is. I want this. And my dad, who's not an animal person, but he convinced me. He's, he was like, let's go look at the dog. Anyway, we ended up going to this vet's office and we ended up adopting Maxie, who was the best dog in the world. Aww. And and that was my introduction to rescue that I learned that oh my that we learned that he was going to be put to sleep actually the next day or the day after that the vet wow. had been boarding him for a whole year and finally said I can't do it anymore nobody wants this dog and interestingly his family were came from champion heritage uh, background uh, the father I believe was best of show in Westminster or best of breed one of them was best of show one of them was best of breed in Westminster these are Wow. top in the world but he wasn't a show dog because his tail wasn't curved the right oh, way oh his tail was perfect and so he was the the you know the stepchild or whatever and and I learned about this as a kid like this goes on you know that this is the way people look at animals and I was doing it looking right. looking at an animal from a TV show and then I realized it's not about look what they look like it's who they are and uh, and Maxie needed me. Maxie ended up changing my life. I ended up sleeping with him every day, and you know things like that. Yeah. You know, my mother would get upset in the morning because I'd be on the floor and Maxie would be in the bed. Well. Uh, <laughs> you know, because uh, he, he had to have the whole bed. So uh, anyway, and then I learned about spay and neuter because we didn't know about spay and neuter then. Right. And Maxie impregnated a couple of dogs. I'm embarrassed oh, no. to say, but you you have to learn. And uh, yeah, my dad even got threatened with a paternity suit by a neighbor, so-called paternity, paternity with Maxie suit. impregnated their dog. And then when I moved to California, I started to learn about rescuing and brought Maxie out. And then uh, I was going to court one day and these three little dogs that were mangy and terrible shape were in front of my apartment building. And I tried to, I had Maxie with me. I was able to only capture one of them. Uh, and I'd never done that before. And I took the dog to court and he was all mangy and a mess. And, uh, and that was the beginning of rescuing. I was wow. 25, 25, 26 years old at the time. And uh, so, and that started rescuing. And the other defining moment, in 1999, I was doing just, I was working in Venice Beach with some of the homeless. That was a kind of a, my, another one of my specialties. Uh, not prosecuting them as much as trying to divert them. And I got, uh, no, I wasn't feeling well, went to a doctor after a year of symptoms and found that I had a very advanced, what the equivalent of stage four leukemia. Oh my gosh. And uh, City of Hope gave me nine months to live. Uh, I was put on chemotherapy. The only treatment 
for this kind of leukemia is a bone marrow transplant. For your listeners who may know, that's a brutal procedure where they take you, they destroy your immune system, uh, and you're, they make you very, very sick. And then they, if you can find a donor, they implant a donor's bone marrow, it's, and they replace your immune system. We had to find a donor. We couldn't find a donor. At the same time, I had over 20 animals at the time. I had 17, about 17 cats. I, had a, I believe I still had a rat, one of the rats at that time. I had, uh, I think, nine dogs or eight dogs. They were big too, not like the little ones I have now. So the house was filled with dogs. Mm -hmm. I think it was six dogs. I never can keep track. There was the rot, actually, it was the Baron, the Rottweiler, Amy, the Pitbull. Trapper the Shepherd, there was three, there was a blind and deaf little terrier, there was an, another large a, a, a Mastiff, uh, very busy on my bed, on my yeah, case like bed. <laughs> when I got sick, this was my support system, not to say that my family wasn't there for me, but they were, but especially my mom, but my life was animals, and no matter how bad I felt, my whole th concern was not about me, but what's gonna to happen to my animals? There was a clinical trial that I tried to get on, but that was not, I didn't qualify for that. Nobody goes on a clinical trial if you're in the advanced stages of a disease. Oh. They only do it at the beginning to see if it'll work with the mildest form. There's no point in trying it if it on the advanced. I had been dating Mayor Reardon's daughter at the time. Uh, yeah, uh, that was quite something, uh, dating the mayor's daughter. Yeah. In fact, when we went to the UCLA doctor for the, uh, the clinical trial to talk to him, he said, by the way, the mayor called me. And I was like, oh, God, I was embarrassed. <laughs> His dick, he said, the mayor called me trying to persuade me to let you go on the trial. And he said, it's not about clout or... You know, he said, it's a matter you, you just don't qualify. We're still using it in, in uh, for people that have just gotten a mild form of it. And it's not even, and interestingly, it wasn't working well with rats. I learned mm. about that. Uh, so they were, they were skeptical about the drug, but they were hopeful. A couple months later, they find a donor. And I am getting in bad shape. I'm, I'm crawling on the floors. I can't stand up for the oh most part. People were coming into the neighbors, coming into the house to take care of the animals. Uh, my mother would do everything but pick up poop. She refused to do that. We and all I'm, have and a I'm boundary. Like, yeah. she, and then we, we got the news that there was a donor. After blood drives had been wow. done around the country, and, and especially in California for me. Uh, and then I'd, I'm like, great. And it's scary. It, they gave me about a 25% chance of surviving for the next year because uh, I was already in such bad shape. And so that was good news, actually. Went to City of Hope one day, and they gave me a big loose leaf filled with everything you don't want to know about bone marrow transplant. Then in there, there's a sheet of paper that says, if you have any animals, you have to get rid of them. I'm like, excuse me? I'm looking at this in disbelief. Uh, and the oncologist, Dr. Foreman, who's wonderful, knew about me and rescuing, that I had like 24 animals at home. And he's like, so I went to him and he's like, yeah, I didn't tell you that. After a year, you could probably have one dog. He said, like a hypoallergenic, but that's it. I'm like, yeah, but these are my support system. These are, plus, where are they going to go? Right. Most of them are with me because nobody already wanted them. Uh, he's like, well, that's the way it is. And family and friends were elated that we found a donor. There were celebrations about it. Meanwhile, I am distraught. 
but happy but distraught. People in the rescue community started putting out feelers about who's going to take Baron, but I, my, I was like, well, Baron has to be with Amy, but Amy has to be with this cat, and you can't break this group up, and you can't, what are you going to do, and, and this one's blind and deaf, who's going to want that one, and, and the groups were amazing, the animal community, uh, which was not nearly as large as it is now, and uh, stepping up to the plate saying, well, I can take this dog for six months, or I know somebody, this was terrible for me. When the doctor told me I was going to have the bone marrow transplant, nobody is allowed to visit you for the first 90 days. They have to I had asked him, could I have a hazmat suit? And he's like, yeah. He said, I never heard of that before. The fire department donated a hazmat suit that I could wear so I could play with the animals at City of Hope after oh, the bone marrow wow. transplant. Stories like that, there's so many that I oh have about God. people doing stuff for me to help me get through this. But there was a moment when I said, I can't do this. Can't live without my animals. I, I, I need it. And so I, uh, I, I canceled the transplant. And wow. City of Hope called me, my doctor, and he's like, what are you, what's going on here? He's like, you can't do that. I'm like, I can't live without the animals. He said, of course, logically, how can you help the animals if you are not around. I said, I know that, but you know, it's, you know, I was going also a great support group uh, uh, and in the support group, so much of it is about sharing experiences with each other and about quality of life. Mm -hmm. They said, my quality of life is more important than longevity. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in that situation, it's hard to believe that, especially family and friends were furious I'm that sure. I canceled the transplant. So after some talking to I, from everybody, I said, all right, let's do it. Then at the same time, the transplant was scheduled and I got a call from the doctor at UCLA who was doing that clinical trial. And he said, I understand that you're gonna be doing the clinical, I mean, the bone marrow transplant. He said, we had an opening in the clinical trial, which means somebody died. And he said, we, this is on a Friday afternoon. The grant that we have requires that we keep it filled and we have to fill it. And we have about two hours to fill this one slot. And we called City of Hope and we decided that we're going to give it as a compassionate thing to somebody who might be doing, that's going through a bone marrow transplant because we think it might strengthen them a little bit, build up their immune system to survive. It's not going to save their life at all. It reverse the leukemia. And he said, we had about 25 patients and the UCLA staff, he said, they met in the cafeteria and they all voted for me because of what I was doing for the animals. And he said, we want you to be on the drug. And he said, it'll, maybe it'll raise your chances of surviving it to like 30% or something. I was like, great. So I went to UCLA and long story about that, but I took the drug, made me very sick at first. And then the transplant was coming up and I'm looking at my animals on the bed and I called City of Hope and canceled it again and said, I can't do it. Finally, the doctor from UCLA called me. I don't know why. He called and said, I want to speak to you. So he brought me in with my parents and he said, Are, do you think that this is because this drug is going to help you? I said, no. He said, I want you to make sure that you understand that the drug has nothing to do with your recovery. You need to do the transplant. I said, I understand that. I'm not 
doing this is nothing. They were thinking that I was hoping this drug would work. I never, no, I had no idea, fantasies about that, illusions about it. They even said, here, see in bold print, it says on the thing you signed, this is not intended to help you recover, blah, blah, blah. Said, okay, and he said, I said, I'm not going to do it. Nobody understood except the support group who understood. Then uh, the do a UCLA doctor, before we were leaving, he said, you know, you, if you want, you can stay on the drug. He says, we'd like you to stay on it because we have we need for the grant. Mm. We, have, we don't want to have to search for somebody. So would you mind staying on the drug until you pass? And, and in fact, they turned around my medical <sighs> record and showed it to me. He said, see? Terminal. It was written there, and my mother's crying while he's mm. saying, "We're not kidding. You are he's terminal. Like, Let me remind You've you. got about two months left, maybe, if you don't do the transplant, and you're going every day. You're going downhill. Anyway, I ended up not doing it. I wouldn't do it. Went home, and I get my mom. I found out later was planning the funeral, and then about a month later, I went in for a bone marrow biopsy to see how bad the cancer was, and Doctor Foreman said, "You know." There's less cancer now than there was <gasps> last month. I don't know what's going on. He said, but you're doing a little bit better. It hasn't grown. I went in about two weeks later, three weeks later. He said, your cancer has gone down about 25%. <gasps> By two months after being on the drug, I was cancer-free. Oh. It turned out that... Just got chills. <laughs> it turned out that the drug did work on me that without anybody realizing, including the, the inventors, the drug did help people. And in fact, it became the fastest approved FDA drug in history. But it was a miracle. They gave me about another year or two to live, you know, because they don't know how long the drug is. And then there was a five-year mark and cancer-free. <laughs> and then 10 years. And now it's, I'm going on the 22nd year. I take the drug every day. Congratulations. Uh, the irony is that for people in the animal world, that the it didn't work on animals. For those of us who are skeptical or against using animals in, in laboratory for testing drugs, this is a drug that they determined was not likely to work on advanced stages of cancer because it didn't on rats. Right. And if it wasn't for that, it might have come out earlier. Mm. And tens of thousands of people over the years might have been saved. Oh, that's but a for really the, the animal point. testing, so it's a twist on yeah. on that. And uh, so then, Time <laughs> Magazine did a story on the drug, and they called me and they said, uh, "We want to talk to you. Um, could we include you in the thing?" This is the article. Well, here they have a quote. I think this drug is the magic people have people have dreamed of. It's given me the ability not just to survive but to have my life back. What that was yes. about was about the animals. So when I say that my animals saved my life, they literally saved my life. Damn. My love of animals, my passion for animals. Not that I would say that anybody should do anything as stupid as I did. And <laughs> It was a risky but, choice. <laughs> but it could not bear being without my animals. There was no life without them. Uh, it ended up that the decision that I made, which seemed so crazy, saved my life and thousands of other people. Was there a pivotal moment that you remember when you were like deciding which road to go down here? Were your animals involved in that moment of making your, your choices? I, I vividly remember dozens of moments when I was in bed looking at them and they're on top of me. 
and these are the and and I'm like this is me this is my quality of life you know I met people in my cancer support group who there were some a couple of people who said what what was keeping them alive was their grandchildren that they had to grow up to see they wanted to see their grandchildren uh, and I understood that it was something that kept them going you know that and for me the animals drove mm-hmm. me I, I think it helped me be stronger and and live as long as I did before I got on the drug uh, and and it, it led to, to some more miracles if you will when I went back to work I had told everybody that my dream was to be a full-time animal cruelty prosecutor I'd been talking about it for years whenever there was an animal cruelty or neglect case in the city they nobody knew how to investigate them the cases were pathetic done by animal control LAPD never even did anything and when they did come to the city attorney or the DA they were unprosecutable because they were so done so poorly I always wanted to take this on and and the fact that nobody was doing it anywhere in the country I was like wow I called the DA's office and said how many felony animal abuse cases have you done in the last 10 years Zero. Zero. In fact, the code section wasn't in their computer because they had used it so little. The clerk's office didn't even have most of the animal cruelty sections in their computer. That's how little prosecutions there were. So I became the animal cruelty, the animal protection unit. I was the unit. I was my supervisor. I was the staff. I was the secretary. I had no desk because they took it away from me. I had no budget and I had no cases. Because none of them were, there were, there were, what few there were were being done so poorly. Mm-hmm. Animal control's attitude was, why bother? Because the prosecutors don't care. Prosecutors' attitude throughout the county and city was, they're giving us such lousy cases, we can't win them anyway. The judges' attitudes on the few cases there were was, it's only a dog. We have way more important things to do with humans. Uh, in spite of the developing link between the awareness of the link between animal abuse yes. and violence against people, judges were laughing at animal cruelty cases when I started. And so I took it on and uh, pretty much did it by myself for the last for the first few years. Cops and animal control officers going into a DA's office or a city attorney and saying, I have this crime against animals. And they're like, well, what's the code section? Where do we look for it? What book is it in? This is how the level of ignorance, it, it, which by the way, isn't that different from domestic violence. When I started as a prosecutor decades ago, uh, people were not getting arrested for domestic violence. Same thing, no training, no awareness, nobody cared. So when I started training and I I got cops trained, I got and we had an incredible, assistant police chief, the highest ranking female in LAPD. Not surprising, it's a female, uh, Sharon Papa. She went to the police chief at the time and said, there's the city attorney who cares about animal cruelty. He wants us to get on board. And he was like, okay, what do you do what you need to do? So she started, she and I and a couple of other people started the Animal Cruelty Task Force. And that was the first in, of its kind in the country. Together we developed guidelines. Uh, and suddenly, and we got the word out we, to all the other cops and animal control that, and other agencies. When you go into a home, if there's a child being neglected, 
and there's an animal there, that animal's being neglected too. Of course. Or the other way around. You see an abused animal, look for the children. And there's a book that has all the laws in it. There was no jury instructions at all for animal cruelty. They didn't even have a definition of animal cruelty in California. There were no cases to look back on to say, well, this is what happened here. There's nothing. Dog fighting is a good example. The football player had just been prosecuted. Um, Michael Vick. Michael Vick, and which was the best thing that ever happened to animal cruelty prosecutions because it woke up the world. Mm -hmm. But LAPD was saying, we don't have it here. That's a different level, which it is. It was a different level. And we we're saying, no, it's, I was a gang prosecutor. I've seen it. It's in the street. Nope, doesn't exist. So I, we talked to cops on the street and who were in South LA and East LA. And they're like, oh my God, I hear the dog fighting every night. Are you kidding me? Well, they started coming forward. They said, we never did anything because there's nothing we can do. And that was the beginning of the Animal Cruelty Task Force. Designated cops, designated DAs, designated city attorney, animal control officers that worked in, were in police cars with animal. It was, it was the most wonderful time for seeing social change. In LA, cities around the country were calling and visiting, asking, how are you doing this? How'd you get everybody together? But when we went to the judges, getting a lot of resistance. So I started teaching the judges about the link between animal abuse and violence against people. I, we brought up criminal records of all the people that I was getting arrested for animal cruelty. More than half of them had arrests or convictions for child abuse or domestic sure. violence. And then there was, a, a, a using the term, a defining moment. Digital cameras came out. We bought a bunch of cameras for uh, animal control for the task force and for one for each shelter. We bought a little portable printer and I started including them and training them on how to do it. I want to show people what it looks like. And judges were shocked from what everything I had been telling them before. This changed everything. I was one of my proudest moments was when the clerk's office uh, complained to the supervising judge that they were being emotionally disturbed by looking at the photos as they were collating the copies to distribute. And they came up with a rule that when in all my cases, the photos had to be in a sealed envelope, which I was fine. That, yeah, I rest my case. That's, yeah. Yeah, one of the travesties of the legal system for decades was if an animal was taken in for uh, impounded, that animal would sit in a cage for up to a year or more. Ooh, While the know. case is we languishing know. in the system. Mm -hmm. And the and the defendant, the animal beater or neglector is walking around mm -hmm. free. Mm -hmm. This happened all the time because the attitude was it's an evidence animal. Now, I was an experienced prosecutor and I'm like, this is crazy. They're not evidence animals. We don't need an animal that was abused two years ago to be sitting in a cage. We need to find a home for that animal right away. So that's a whole story I can tell you. But I developed a program on my own where on all my cases, I authorized that within three, with first of all, that the cases had to be investigated quickly, not six months or a year, because we have a live victim sitting in a cage. And we have to do this quickly, and then we have to find either a foster or I have, there are legal maneuvers to get the animal, terminate the, the ownership, get permission from the defendant. Half the time the defendants were like, I don't want the dog anyway. And that they, they would still be sitting there oh. for a year while the case is there and the owner's already sitting here. He doesn't want the dog. 
I changed that literally overnight. And, and so eventually the DA adopted that policy also. And no animals after we had, we kept track of them. And every animal, the goal was within three weeks of the, of the case being started, investigated, uh, animals had to get out. And almost every animal uh, in about eight or nine years that I did this was out in three or four weeks to a home or adopted. And all over the country, this has been happening. We set the standard, a new way of dealing with animal cruelty. We're on the receiving end of these animals and we are often privy to um, cruelty cases kind of you know as the animals are coming into the shelter and the owners are in the process of being tried and maybe this animal was thrown off an overpass onto the tent and has a broken body and needs to see an orthopedic vet like now so you know, we have been on that end of things as the owners being prosecuted and we've been able to take the animal on a good Sam, good Samaritan, and knock on wood, raise the money for that orthopedic surgery, mm -hmm. surgeries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just have to hold on to her until that case is tried. This is going back to when we started talking about problems resurfacing that you think you resolved. We were training other agencies around the country, giving out the guidelines that there's never a need to hold on to an animal. There are like three different ways. One of them is getting them into a foster, getting them into a rescue group to get medical care. There are also things like a lean where you can, where you can actually, they're supposed to be billed for how long the animal is staying. There's a financial way of sort of convincing them mm -hmm. to give up the animal, mm -hmm. uh, which we used sparingly, but it was very effective. Uh, and yet I was finding more and more of these cases. And, and when the LA Times did the, the scandal, revealed the scandal about LA City a couple of years ago, that was it. She talked about evidence animals were there up to two years. What Where happened? does the evidence lie in these animals once their wounds heal or whatever physical evidence they provide? What is the value of the action? There isn't, right? I mean, we, we wonder that when we see a dog who's like not available and they don't know when they will be available. And I just always ask that question. And you're not like, a lawyer, well, but you know, you can It tell. was just a yeah. question. <laughs> we're like, we're willing yeah. to pull this dog today and, you know, get the dog out of here and into a home. And well, they yeah, I mean, the broken bones release. are going to heal. Like when they try the case in six months, this dog isn't going to look the way the dog looks it has now. Like, take to a do photo. Zero. Zero. It, it is, it's, it's unbelievable. And we'll do it every single time. I'll do it every With, single time. Yep. Every single day, you are doing what you can, whether it is on the board of many, 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 too many that, mm -hmm. to even mention or you're showing up to volunteer at Agora, which again, like another thing I feel like you and I talk about because this podcast for us is kind of our way of soothing our souls. And we're on the rescue end. Like we get to go to the shelter and we've already relied on you guys to tell us about, oh, there's this dog Precious who came in, you must meet her, she's, I'm obsessed with her, blah, blah, blah. We get to come in and take her out and then give her a good life. You're on the inside. You show up to work every day 
and have to look at these animals who may or may not get to ever leave. That's right. And that, I feel like for us is like, I, I for one, couldn't do that. No. Well, I think it's so interesting too, because I feel like your life has had this full circle moment where you went from prosecuting the people to then helping the animals who are victims of these cases. And I wonder, because this is something that we deal with and we're like, well, I could never do it. What he does, like, how do you do it? I know that in the beginning of your life, you got to see the good of people and the way that people showed up for you when you were sick and you needed that sort of support. But then you see the real horrid side of people too. Like, where do you fall in being able to just like live life? Well, first of all, remember I was a gang prosecutor, so I was accustomed to a lot of nasty stuff. I can tell you that you, you can get hardened yes. by it. Yes. Uh, the animal stuff uh, is different, and you're speaking for the voiceless, mm -hmm. uh, victims that can't speak out. I've, I never cried when I was a gang prosecutor, or but I've cried a whole bunch of times on the way home from work when I saw the photos and where I got angry because the, along the way, the investigators or people in the system didn't care. It's very demoralizing to think yes. that, you know, so much of what you did in your career and, you, and it was celebrated. You know, when we did this, this magic that was happening for 10 years where animal cruelty was taken seriously, everybody was involved. It was a community of experts devoted to stopping in, in animal cruelty. And, and trying to prevent it. In the end, I think, if, if there's prosecutors and people out there listening or see, watching this that want to know what to do, it's, first of all, individuals can do it. Because I did it. I did it individually at the beginning. Without any help, with, with a lot of opposition. It's finding people in the system like you, people that are passionate about what you do and saying, what more can you do? What more can we do? Let's talk about that. Where are we now with LA City and LA County? What advice could you give us and the people listening in order to be able to make changes and a difference? Okay. Well, I was starting to say about complain to the right people. I, I have a phrase, a solution-based approach. To, I love a solution-based approach. It's at the end of my email. Um, everything that I've done in my office I, looking back, I didn't think I knew what I was doing when I was doing it, but there were approaches to, in law enforcement that were different than that traditional law enforcement wasn't working, like prostitutes on the street who kept getting arrested over and over again. I mean, I had cases with women who had 17 cases, who had 8, 9, 10 pending cases in the same building where they would go to, it was insane. And, and revolving in the pimps where nobody was going after the pimps. And uh, in gangs, they were doing things, arresting drug dealers in gangs, and another drug dealer would just take their place. These are, I'm talking about problems that I solved with innovative, what I, I think are innovative approaches that weren't just arrest and convict. Mm -hmm, there were right. different strategies that solved the problem, which it did. They, they shouldn't be protesting in front of a shelter they should be protesting in I front see. of the city council. Right. They should be screaming and yelling at every meeting that the budget should have an extra zero. And in the end, it goes back to that if the city council doesn't give more money, a lot more money to the council, to, to animal control, 
you're not going to see changes. The shelter needs staff. Yes. They need better staff. There's no question about that. Um, so I guess one of my messages is um, if you're going to solve a problem, learn what the problem really is. What's causing mm -hmm. the problem? Mm -hmm. The problem is government not doing their job. And with spay and neuter, with low-cost vet care. Uh, these are what, those are the two single things that I think would empty the shelters. Mm -hmm. If we had We're that. with you on that. It's the responsibility of the government that when somebody comes into a shelter, says, I have a, I just uh, found a two-year-old pit bull on the street. She's my love of my life. I want to get her neutered. I live in, in a, you know, one and a half bedroom, one bedroom home. You know, I work at McDonald's. I can't afford, uh, my kids are in school. I can't even afford to feed them. Where do I go? Oh, we'll call these numbers and you might be able to get away with $600 for spay and neuter. It's so and, frustrating. And then you call and they say, well, in six months, we might be able to have you. That's the city of Los Angeles right now yeah. and the county of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I think the future of animal welfare, much of it lies with lawyers, young lawyers. You know, when I started, there were no classes in law schools at all. Uh, there was no animal, animal welfare. Law. There was no animal law at all when I started. Nothing. Now, almost every law school, virtually every law school has a class on that. And young lawyers are the future because a lot of it is changing. Not tougher laws. People talk about we need tougher laws. No, we need laws to be enforced. There's so much to do and so much to be done. And it can start with an individual. So anyone being like, I can't fix it myself is not... That's right. Looking in the right place. Yeah. That's why I was so excited right. that you had agreed to come on today because like you are that individual who did it yep. yourself. And, you know, we often get questions like, how did you guys start a rescue? And I'm sure, you know, you've gotten the question, how, how do you do all the things that you've done? And so I was like, this is the perfect opportunity for you to come on oh, and good. inspire and you, know, you on a daily basis spend your life with you know I, I don't know if the cameras can pick this up but there's I know we need to get precious is on the floor shadow is over there yeah. tell yeah, us their stories look she woke up she knows she's being talked about you have a big stretch so, oh hello guys oh, they're like it's not my turn <laughs> we're up we're ready so so, on, baby. so, can, I know you. Can, you're allowed to use your leg. Oh, so I'm this so sweet so little kidding. girl, precious, is precious, and her best friend is Shadow. They came in together to Hi. the Agora shelter. Wait. Um, as you can see, they're very unfriendly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's worth noting again that we've been talking for God knows how long, and they have been just laying here. Before we started filming, and at the beginning of the filming, they are dogs. They yes. they love to play. They a shadow. It, has tons of toys. This is Shadow. Loves to play with toys. They they are a bonded pair. They go play in the yard together. They sleep together. Um, they're four and a half years old, as far as we know. If you are interested in meeting Precious or Shadow, go to the Agora Animal Shelter. The shelter is open 11 to 5, uh, Monday through Saturday. And no appointments needed anymore. And... Thank you for having me. Thank you so uh, much. I hope for I didn't coming. overwhelm you with details. No, and, no. Yeah. I it's love the details. I just feel like there's a lot that I can do now. Really? Yes, I oh, feel my. invigorated.
Oh, yes. good. I'm glad. Thank and you so we know much. who to call with questions. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh,